0: You're listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, you can find us at faithchurchindy.com. Now here's the teaching. We are studying the book of Lamentations during this season of Lent because the practice of lament gives us room to name our grief to identify it, to lay it before the Lord, and to give ourselves to Him in that process of lament and grieving. Last week, Pastor Joey introduced us to the book of Lamentations in chapter 1 as basically kind of a poetic worship service, uh, an extended reflection on the national grief of God's people Israel in the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people. Chapter 1 goes back and forth between grief and guilt, and the narrator leads the congregation through an acknowledgment that it is their sin, their rejection of the Lord that has brought about all of this destruction and suffering. But we also hear this repeated question, Where? Do I find comfort? Where is any hope? And that's the question we come to today in Lamentations chapter 2. I thought I knew grief. In my 25 years of pastoral ministry, I've sat at the bedside of people who were taking their last breath. I've wept with and comforted families of loved ones. I've led a lot of funeral services. I've read quite a bit about suffering and loss and grief and the grieving process and what's helpful when people are mourning. I thought I knew grief. Then last spring, my older brother Brad died after a battle with pancreatic cancer. He was 61 Doctors had thought that the cancer had gone into remission just six months earlier and answered a prayer. My brother Brad was able to walk his daughter down the aisle at her wedding in December. And then in January, the cancer came back. And before the end of April, he was dead. I cried, of course. But, you know, there was just a lot to do. Brad was the only pastor at a small country church in Shelbyville and so there wasn't anyone else to do the funeral and of course I couldn't even imagine anyone else leading a service in celebration of his life and and sharing his faith. So there was the funeral and all the planning and you know being in charge of the service and and then the burial the next day and helping his wife with Brad's estate and trying to help her and their kids with their grief. And I I took a day uh, to watch the video of the funeral service and to grieve and told myself I was good. I was past it. But over the past few months, I've been noticing things like feeling more anxious, like my world is going to collapse. All my emotions have been uh, amped up and near the surface. I, uh, I cry a lot more easily. I get angry more quickly, especially at those annoying jerks on the road who are driving inconsiderately. And maybe that's not grief. Maybe that's, you know. <laughs> I've struggled to remember things, uh, like I'm in a mental fog. It, it's been hard to start things and finish things. And, and I'm pretty sure it's been my unwillingness to deal with the grief that's been keeping me from learning from it and growing through it and healing. I've been trying to hold it in, tell myself I'm fine, and hoping that it goes away. You know, ignore it, stuff it down, medicate it, all the, all the things that we do that seem easier than naming the grief and embracing it and learning to live with it. What about you? Do you think about losses and griefs, sorrows in your life, what do you lament? What has that done to you? What is it doing to you? Uncomfortable questions, because we don't like to think about pain. We want to know, you know, what's the solution? What's the pill that I take to make this get better? Where's the comfort? Where's, where's the quick fix for this? And Lamentations 2 does not give us a quick answer or even an obvious answer. Instead, we go even deeper into the pain and the loss and the suffering that the narrator and the community of God's people have experienced. And Lamentations 2 does answer those questions, but in a way that seems kind of disheartening. The only Place that we find hope is in the presence of the one that's wrecked our lives. Hope for the wrecked comes from surveying the wreckage and turning to the one who wrecked us. Let's turn to Lamentations chapter 2 if you haven't already. We're going to walk through the chapter uh, focusing on some of these details of lament so that we can begin to understand what the narrator is asking the people of Israel, what he's asking us to do with our grief. The first five verses are a description, a summary of kind of this national crisis, the the trauma that Israel has experienced as a result of God's judgment. And you can just go through and look at the Notice the barrage of grim verses here of God's action. He has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down. He has not remembered. He has swallowed up. He has broken down. He has brought down. He has cut down. He has withdrawn He has bent his bow, he has killed, he has poured out his fury, he has become like an enemy, he has multiplied mourning and lamentation. And the verses that follow walk through kind of the the comprehensive nature of this destruction. In verses 6 and 7, the whole religious life of the community has been swept away. No more priests, no more temple, no more sacrifice. In verse 8, there's this picture of God almost like a demolition worker measuring out the walls of Jerusalem for the sake of destroying them. In verse 9, the the political and the social stability of the nation is swept away. Kings and princes are among the nations, in other words, taken off as captives in exile, and the elders, the, the, the wise trusted people in the community, sit on the ground in silence, old and young, men and women, rich and poor, powerful and powerless. All of Jerusalem has been destroyed, brought down by Yahweh, their covenant God. He has wrecked them in his anger. Here in chapter 2, the other thing that comes up in the early verses repeatedly is this picture of God's anger, his wrath, his fury, his fierce anger, and in verse 6, his fierce indignation. The significance of that phrase, as one commentator puts it, is we encounter anger mostly as kind of a a petty irritation, a tantrum, a mean streak coming out when we don't get our way. We have only occasional encounters with mature, healthy anger. Anger as a healthy, honest manifestation of love, of offended righteousness is rare among us. But that's what God is like. Because in the Bible, God's anger is is neither capricious nor continuous. His love endures forever. His anger is only momentary. It's his righteous response to the rejection of him by his people. That's what the narrator is making clear in verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed, he has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. And the context is remember, God had promised his people that turning away from him would bring destruction. And he has warned them over and over and over and over and called them back and called them back. And they've rejected him until finally the Lord's patience is overwhelmed. And the narrator wants God's people to make sense of their suffering in light of God's promised judgment on spiritual adultery. To see their suffering as evidence of their sin so that they can repent And be healed by God. Because hope for the wrecked comes from surveying the wreckage. Now for us, it's important to understand we do not experience God's anger in this way. As Christians, we understand that God's righteous anger at our sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. We don't experience God's wrath like those people did because Jesus has borne it for us. We don't know God's anger like this, but it can feel that way. It can feel like, God, you're punishing me. God, it feels like you're angry with me, like I I must have done something wrong to deserve this. Like, I'm the object of of your rejection and wrath. What did I do to deserve this? And we have to remind ourselves that God's wrath is not being poured out in judgment on us. Because knowing the cause of our suffering, or for us, what hasn't caused our suffering, is important. But it doesn't necessarily alleviate the grief. Look back in verse 11 in the next few verses as the narrator is just overwhelmed by his sorrow. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground. That's kind of a Hebrew expression that we might say, my. Stomach is all torn up. My heart is is torn up within me. My my heart is overflowing with emotion. The narrator's physical experience of this grief is brought on by, by a series of painful flashbacks as he thinks on all the wreckage that he and his people have experienced. In verse 12, he's seeing infants and young children dying of starvation in the aftermath of the conquest. In verse 14, he, he remembers how the prophets offered the false hope that nothing bad would ever happen to them. Oh, surely God will never let anything like that happen to his people. In verses 15 to 16, he, he sees the marauding armies enter the city and the taunts and the jeers of them reviling God's people in the day of their destruction. He pours out his heart in grief and then comes back to the present longing to give some comfort to this daughter of city Jerusalem. I think that's a model in a sense, for us, for how we name the grief and process it and what we can do with it. My brother Brad its like a father figure to me. He was my best friend. I started to realize his death was more traumatic than I thought a few weeks ago when I just happened to come across his funeral bulletin when I was cleaning some things up and Literally broke down in tears, just seeing his face again. I decided I, I needed to get some help processing my grief, so I'm attending Grief Share here at church. It's a, a grief and loss support group that have led by people who have also experienced grief and loss themselves. Having gone through grief, they now want to help others who are grieving, kind of like the narrator in this chapter two of Lamentations. It's, it's a place and a community to explore all the emotions of grief and process all the questions and, uh, and to be together with people who are also experiencing some, something like what you're going through. I mean that's, that's what the narrator is doing here in verse back in verse thirteen. What can I say for you? To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you? He's saying, I, I don't want to give simplistic answers. I, I don't want to, you know, slap a band-aid over a gaping wound. There's no comparison to what you've experienced? How how could I possibly comfort you? And and I don't think it's just a statement for these people and what they've experienced. I I think it's also a suggestion at how we can enter into other people's grief. It's like a a friend coming alongside you in in a moment of loss and saying, I can't even pretend to understand what you're going through, but I'm sorry and I'm here for you. Nothing more needs to be said. The the grief is so deep that the narrator doesn't even really know where to begin or how to respond. But, But we don't stay there because there is hope. After asking in verse 13, At the end, your your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Then he goes on in the next set of verses through kind of potential solutions that come to mind. In verse 14, the prophets, well, those were the guys who told us lies. They're no help. In verse 15, the people around kind of ridicule and mock and contempt. In verse 16, there are enemies around who are actually cheering on all the loss. And in verse 17, the Lord. Well, the Lord's the one who did this. The Lord is thrown down without pity. But there's a turn. There's, there's an important turn here. In verse 18, their heart cried to the Lord which is probably better translated as an exhortation, let your heart cry to the Lord, because it parallels the other exhortation in verse 19. Let your heart cry to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water. Before the presence of the Lord, lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children. These two verses mark a a kind of a turning point. The, The first whole section has been almost, again, like this extended lament, this funeral dirge. And now the narrator is calling Lady Jerusalem, calling the people of Israel, calling us to grieve face to face with the God who has wrecked us. He's saying, I, I know you can't sleep. I know you're waking up in the middle of the night. I know you toss and turn on your bed and the watches of the night. And, and I know all the tears that are streaming from your face. And as often, as often as you find yourself sleepless, as often as the tears come, he's saying, let that be as many words as you cry out to God. As often as that happens, turn that into prayer. Jerusalem's destruction, this catastrophe that they've experienced, this mourning and despair that they're going through, if the narrator is right, that it's a result of their sin, it's not random forces, it's not blind luck, it's not geopolitical powers. If it's from the Lord... That's actually hopeful. Because if the Lord is in some way behind these events, then that means he can be cried out to. He can be appealed to. It's maybe the most counterintuitive part of grief, especially when we feel the anguish that says, Lord, couldn't you have done something? Couldn't you have stopped that car from going over the center line? Couldn't couldn't you have kept that person from hurting or abusing? Couldn't you have stopped that disease? Lamentations is telling us that the one who is in control of our pain is the only one who can heal it. Because hope, for those of us who have been wrecked, comes from surveying the wreckage and turning to the wrecker. Now, a lot of our suffering is simply the result of living in a fallen world. So God is not the direct cause of much of our pain, but, but at the very least, he could have done something, right? At times I've cried out to God, I, God, I know you're good. I, I know you love us. There's no reason for you to take my brother's life. He loved you. He was doing good for you. And I just miss him. And I don't know what else to say. That's what Lady Jerusalem's prayer sounds like in verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Do you not See, I'm the child that you say you love, and this is what you've done, Lord. Her prayer is a model prayer for those dealing with grief and loss and trauma. Look, God. Look, notice, pay attention. You, You did this, you did this, you did this. You could have done that. Amen. It's not the kind of prayers that we usually offer in church on Sunday. But she's beginning the process of moving through her grief by taking it to the one who's wrecked everything. She's named her grief and she's looking for hope from the one who's wrecked her life. Because hope for the wrecked comes from surveying the wreckage and turning to the wrecker. And what that means for us is this. You have to name your grief in order to frame your grief. You have to name your grief in order to frame it. Did you catch what was said back in uh, verse Thirteen, Your ruin is as vast as the sea. And that's what it can feel like if we don't name it, if we don't list it, if we don't give words to the loss and the grief. Because I think that's what I've been dealing with these last ten months or so is my... Inability to name the grief, to write it down, to, to list it, to accept that it's real because when you write it out, there's something about it that makes it feel like, okay, I can't ignore it anymore. I, I'd been hoping, you know, that I'd grieved enough, that, that a day to remember and cry would do it and the grief would eventually fade and, I, you know, I'd just go past it. But over recent weeks, it's been obvious that my unaddressed grief continues to stay near the surface and bubble up in, in ways that end up hurting the people that I love. And, uh, and in verse 13, that narrator again finds himself at a loss for how to comfort. Your, your ruin, your wound is as vast as the sea. Until we name the grief we can't process it. We, we can't leave it feeling like it's uncontrolled and, and wild and limitless. We have to name our grief, name the sorrow, in order to put boundaries around it so that we can begin to process it, to learn to live with it, and, and to suffer the grief without losing hope. So to encourage us to process our laments, uh, we have these cards that are near the doors on the way out as you head out. I encourage you to pick up one or two or four or 10, or however many you need. It says, "During Lent, I lament, and, and there's space for you to write in there, the grief or the sorrow that you've been carrying. I, I know I need to do that. What about you? What do you need to lament? What sorrow or grief are you carrying? Because the first step towards learning to live with it is to name it before God and to carry the grief to Him and to look to Him for hope. What do you need to lament? Loss of a spouse or a child or a friend, the loss of a marriage, loss of a dream maybe regrets over things that you do differently. Maybe it's the loss of ability and the loneliness that comes with aging, the slow loss of vitality that used to define you, the loss of a career that gave you identity and purpose. Maybe you need to lament a marriage that isn't what you'd hoped it would be or the lack of a marriage that has never shown up in your relationship. Maybe you lament the the pressure to perform, the need to measure up constantly so you don't have to hear the criticisms of a parent or a spouse or a boss who's never satisfied. Maybe you're outwardly successful, but your family just wants you to be home and to be with them. Every grief, every sorrow is as unique as the individual that carries it. What are you carrying? Are you willing to write it down to name it, to recognize it before God? I encourage you to take, take one of those cards as an opportunity to name it. Because when we name our grief, then hope can start to shine through. The first verse of Lady Jerusalem's prayer, remember in verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? In other words, have you ever treated anyone like this? And the answer biblically is yes. Yes, prophet Isaiah is one of the prophets who predicted the fall of Jerusalem, but also God's deliverance through a servant who would suffer on behalf of the people. Isaiah talks about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. So that when we cry out, God, what are you doing? Surely you've not treated anyone like this. We're able to remind ourselves yes, yes, God has. God sent his son, who didn't deserve any grief, any sorrow, any suffering, any rejection, to take it all on our behalf so that through his anguish, his sorrow, his suffering, we would never be rejected. And we would be the beloved children of God. In our sorrow, in our grief, in our lament, we remember God has not forgotten us and he has not forsaken us. Even when he didn't prevent the grief. In whatever griefs we experience, we know that God is not pouring out his wrath on us because Jesus took it God himself entered our grief and bore it himself so that we, though we suffer momentarily, will never suffer eternally. The one who could have wrecked us, wrecked himself so that we could be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... uh, It seems hard to say thank you for an experience of lament and grief and sorrow through your word. Father, we trust and pray that you will give us faith to believe that you wound in order to heal, and that, Father, you would give us faith and courage in our laments and losses to name them and to bring them to you. So that they're not boundless. They're not as vast as the ocean. And that in crying out to you, we find hope and comfort and the presence of your spirit who reminds us of your love and your hope in the middle of the grief. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.